Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Zar Saeed, Associate Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development at the University of Washington School of Law. We will discuss her article, Craft Beer and the Rising Tide Effect, an empirical study of sharing and collaboration among Seattle's craft breweries, which is published in the Lewis and Clark Law Review. So welcome to the show, Zar. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Um, and I especially enjoyed reading this paper because I myself have been a not particularly good, but enthusiastic home brewer for, for about 10 years now. And so I totally identified with the people who you were talking to and profiling, profiling in the paper. And the comments really resonated with, um, with experiences that I've had talking to people in the in the craft beer community, so congratulations on this on this excellent paper. Thank you so much, and I love discovering that you are also a brewer. Um, it's great to have those people come out in the IP community and tell me both the things that I was in their mind getting right or wrong, and also just just empathizing. Like, yeah, I've I've had some of that experience myself, so that's great. Thank you. <laughs> Indeed, I'm actually drinking a home brewed uh, lemongrass mead as we speak. That's perfect. I am drinking a strong cold brew, also home brewed, but uh, strong <laughs> in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, so for for listeners who may not be that familiar with the craft brew renaissance, um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what exactly you mean by craft beer and what got you interested in studying the craft beer movement and industry. Sure. So uh, a lot of pieces to that question. Um, the, the first is I'm referring to craft beer by the widespread uh, industry use of it, um, promulgated by a, a trade organization, um, which is to say that it's small, independent, and traditional. So the, there are specific parts to that definition. Um, but once you are more than a quarter owned, for instance, by a non-craft brewer, you, you could you could actually become a non-craft brewer uh, overnight if, um, for instance, Anheuser-Busch uh, acquired you. Um, so the, the definition I'm going with is an industry-wide one. But I was attracted to, and I guess this connects to what a craft brewer is, I was attracted to the topic um, as a consumer of craft beers and as somebody who noticed that over the past couple of decades, um, it feels as though beer has moved out of bars into spaces that are relaxing, family-oriented, often beautifully designed, you know, nice quality wood and lighting, maybe a little bit of, you know, a, a loft or architectural space, or maybe it's outdoors. Uh, and that's certainly true in, in Washington state and in Seattle where I live. Um, and just looking around and noticing that there was something different about the way people were drinking and there was something different about what they were drinking. And, uh, that experience made me think, uh, about the cultural questions, but I probably wouldn't have written about any of those. Um, had I not also been drawn to some of the potential intellectual property questions that I could see, um, and I'll pause there and can can talk about um, you know the IP aspects of this, but that's that's really what I'm talking about. When I talk about craft beer and why I was drawn to learning more about it. Mm -hmm. So your paper focuses on a particular geographical area, uh, namely Seattle. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about 
why you made that choice and why you why you felt that Seattle was perhaps like a uniquely appropriate geographical location to think about the kinds of questions you were interested in asking? Yes, money. <laughs> I did not have a huge grant to go travel around um, the country. So that's really the, the simple and kind of practical first answer. Um, but in a way, um, it's presupposing the answer because um, really where I started was what can I study here in Seattle? And then beer was one of those things. Um, I I had come uh, shortly before beginning this project, I had come from a round table dedicated to a book uh, that I know you know by Jessica Silby called The Eureka Myth, in which she had done 50 long form interviews of um, people in the Northeast region, all within driving distance of Boston. And these people were um, creators and scientists, businessmen, middlemen, uh, lawyers as well, uh, involved in the copyright and patent industries. And the whole uh, roundtable that Mark McKenna hosted at, at Notre Dame, it's a wonderful day full of stimulating conversations about intellectual property had caused me to think about kind of what sorts of projects could build off Jessica's insights uh, in a, a sentence. And I urge everyone to go pick up the book and, and read it. But in, in a sentence or two, the book was was um, showing through interviews with long form interviews with these people, uh, how IP laws did and didn't map uh, onto their experiences of creating or of um, invention or of managing uh, those creations and inventions. And once we as scholars and policymakers start to see that these laws really just don't map practices, you know, it invites us to reflect on maybe why that is or what we might do differently. Um, so I came home to Seattle and I right away started thinking about uh, Jessica studied, which, which had focused on copyright and, and patent, um, and wondering whether the things that she said about um, her uh, sense of those interviews would be things I felt uh, or, or, or indeed heard from my interviewees if I were to ask some of the same kinds of questions here in Seattle. You know, Seattle is a distinct um, business and legal environment. We were, for example, one of the first countries um, to... Uh, bless same-sex marriage. We were one of the first, uh, excuse me, I mean states, um, one of the first states to quote unquote legalize marijuana, right? To have a, a vibrant um, over-the-counter marijuana trade. And then beyond that, there are lots of, I'm going to use an, an ugly word, but sort of synergies uh, with the, the beer industry and other existing industries that so we've got this uh, historic excellence in, in coffee, or if not excellence, we'll call it dominance, right? We're Starbucks is here. Um, and we've got um, uh, a long standing wine industry. So there were various ways in which I thought um, this was among the industries where I might find interesting things. And then I guess the last piece of your question, and, and sort of sorry to go on uh, at some length about it, but it is a, a, a question with a lot of pieces to it. And one of the things that you said right at the start was what makes Seattle unique. And I'm not sure if I can, I know I can't prove that Seattle is unique, but I, my intuitions are that there are aspects of Seattle that make it unusual, um, including that there were among the brewers that I interviewed or heard of even in the industry, even if I didn't speak with them, many people who had come over after either a dejected or a lucrative career in tech um, or in big business, which meant something for 
this smaller scale business and this, these artisanal, um, kind of shops really that were doing a smaller scale of business, but that now had people who had been part of like a major marketing team or who had deep experience in bottling and canning or indeed with software and there therefore had, you know, certain experiences there. And then many of them had a lot of money. Um, that's not all of them for sure, but some of them had a kind of parachute that allowed them to focus on craft and not to worry about a, a bottom line or, you know, breaking even for a little while. And so, you know, I think there's a cluster of things that would be very interesting to test um, in other craft beer uh, markets to see whether uh, there are, in fact, some generalizable things about Seattle. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Jessica Silby's work, and I think it's <clears throat> it's pretty clear that your study shares a lot of um, methodological commonality with uh, some of her projects, which is a nice kind of uh, you know, interscholar conversation, I think, but it also seems to track with a broader, almost like sociological move that I've seen among a lot of intellectual property scholars in particular, Mm -hmm. thinking about this relationship between formal intellectual property rights and social norms that police similar areas or kind of shape similar areas of endeavor without literally being about intellectual property in the kind of traditional formal sense. I wonder if you could just briefly talk about your project in relation to that bigger kind of move among intellectual property scholars. Sure. And you're right. They are connected. So there's this body of scholarship on norms uh, and the ways in which um, informal practices either solidify or replace um, the solidify into quasi legal rules, but that aren't legal, right? Sort of informal, or that actually replace or stand in for uh, legal rules where law might not apply. Say, for instance, if copy uh, copyright doesn't protect recipes, but um, shaming chefs who copy does protect them in a way, um, or if secrecy protects them, um, and uh, I don't think I went into this project thinking I was going to be doing a norms project quite so explicitly. Um, I was curious about practices on the ground and I wanted to create as much as I could a thick description. Um, and I was surprised in some ways to learn that there was very little interest in most areas of intellectual property law among craft brewers with the the big exception being trademark. Um, And in fact, in one case, I had a brewer write me back and say, well, I mean, I'd meet with you, but I don't, there's no IP in beer. So I don't know why would, what would even be talking about? Um, You know, we're not doing anything new. There's no protection for any kind of recipe. So kind of like question mark, question mark, you know, why are we even having this conversation? Um, So that was kind of interesting. Um, But the norm study took shape around two things that surprised me. Um, One was the extent of, maybe I should have expected this, but I just didn't, the extent of collaboration and sharing. Um, And the other was the way in which a reflex around belonging played out. So if you were another craft brewer, brewers that I spoke with and brewers that I heard about were very likely to treat you differently than if you came from so-called big beer and I just didn't expect to to find that. So those were two two ways in which the questions that I asked started to surface 
um, or to bring to the surface um, practices and norms that you know don't align necessarily with intellectual property law. Mm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the methodology that you used for for your study, like you know, kind of describe the approach that you took and why you took it. And I was especially interested in sort of things you discovered along the way, like you kind of alluded already to kind of learning more and you know having some mild surprises, it sounds like, while you were conducting the study. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about any moments like that and ways in which those experiences might have informed the way you can conducted the study going forward. Yeah, sure. It was a great learning opportunity for me because I'd never done qualitative empirical research and I spent months just with primers before I did anything, um, you know, just sort of reading college books on how to do it and mining Jessica Silby's bibliography uh, and kind of trying to figure out what I needed to know before I even started. Uh, and then, um, and then at, at, you know, at a certain point, one always has to just sort of jump in. Um, and I was gratified to learn that the mark of methodological rigor in such, not saying I've achieved it, but I, I strived for it. Um, but, but in a qualitative study, it's not getting it right, uh, right out of the gates the way it might be for um, a quantitative empirical study. Uh, it's actually tweaking it along the way. So it's tuning to what you're discovering and refining your questions. So that's, a, that's not just a legitimate, but it's actually in certain kinds of work, the, the best practices for what you do. So that was good because it took some of the pressure off, right, to, to get everything correct, quote unquote, from the beginning. Um, so I started with a, pre, a protocol, a set of questions that my excellent research assistant, um, now a practicing lawyer, but Raz uh, Barnea, um, worked on with me. And uh, we, I went out on these interviews and I asked these questions and it was clear that the questions were kind of not the things that craft brewers were going to talk to me about. So that was sort of lesson one. They, they weren't interested in talking about too much about um, the greatness of their beer um, or why they might experience what we might think of as an endowment effect or might want to own it or uh, think about its quality. I mean, they were sure of its quality, but you know, the, the questions ended up quickly turning to other sorts of issues. And I think, and I'm just bracketing that for the moment, but that was, a powerful learning experience. Um, and, uh, again, that iterative process of refining your questions is exactly what you're supposed to do in qualitative research. This, the second thing had to do with sampling and whom I spoke with. Um, so unlike with, um, quantitative research and other sorts of larger scale projects where you actually want to be, um, or you may want to, uh, randomize your sample, I started with the list of then 56, um, I believe it was, uh, craft brewers listed in um, the smallest subset of the city of Seattle, right? So kind of a, a defined um, municipal category. And I worked my way, I won't say down because I don't want to potentially de-anonymize uh, my interviewees, but from a from a particular way that I could kind of track the order of whom I was speaking with. And then about six interviews in, um, and of course, by this point I had asked many more than six, but the, after six, you know, conducted, um, I thought, I wonder when I'm going to speak with a woman if I don't make that happen. Mm. Um, and that was also true when I started looking at socioeconomic, but other sorts of factors, um, uh, including race, um, not many 
people of color in the craft brewing community and relatively speaking fewer women than men, although there's been a big push to diversify. Um, and so then my next few interviews, I deliberately went about, um, trying to construct a more diversified, uh, interview base. Uh, and again, that's exactly the thing that makes a randomized sample flawed and that does create a kind of targeting effect, but that when you know why you're doing it helps improve the sample that you're creating. So, so maybe you could like move transition then into talking a, a little more specifically about some of your, your findings. I mean, it, it struck me that one of the kind of core observations was the sort of insider outsider quality to the craft brew kind of community slash industry in the sense where it was like you were either within the fold of craft brewers or you were outside as a kind of mega brewer or industrial brewer, uh, a commercial brewer of some kind. Um, and you use a term that I, I thought was really interesting and I hadn't heard before, which was Coopetition, <laughs> and, and I, I wonder if you, I wonder if you could expand a little bit more on on kind of that phenomenon and on why you think that sort of insider outsider mentality uh, both kind of arose in this context and why it was important and how it shaped relationships among craft brewers. Yeah, so the coopetition term, which is in some ways such a silly term, but actually kind of helpful at the same time, um, comes from the management literature. Um, and actually, craft beer is one of the case studies for studying this phenomenon of uh, cooperating even while competing. And that's where the, the portmanteau of coopetition comes from. Portmanteau, uh, just the two words being joined together. Um, and um, it's, I, I guess... You know, if we're talking to non-economists and non-lawyers out there, right, it's a matter of common sense that neighbors help each other, right? So why would we expect them to behave in a way that isn't, in a sense, like neighborly or um, community-oriented, right? When a bunch of people are all, say, starting off, they're going to try to help each other all survive. Uh, and so there's a piece of common sense, in a way, underneath the concept of coopetition, which is when any industry is emerging, um, you would expect to see more cooperation, even if there is ultimately a competition for the same. Uh, in this case, it would be uh, consumers, right? In entertainment, it might be audiences or something. Um, but then what's surprising um, in a way is that craft beer is not just emerging, right? It's not like it's a brand new industry and it hasn't been here now in some form, for, you know, depending on how you define it, either, you know, 40 years or 20. I mean, again, depending on how you define it, craft, craft beer is not a brand new thing. So why is it still around then this sense of um, cooperation? And the theory is that coopetition forms and unites a group of, um, let's say, under-resourced or uh, it, you know, you wouldn't have to be under-resourced, but sort of the, the underdog in a way when there is uh, what the management literature calls uh, collective oppositional identity. So there's basically an enemy, kind of like what happens during wartime or what happened, um, I, I think about it, you know, New York and 9-11 or less tragically, my first couple days in law school was when there was the big blackout um, 
in New York City and I was fairly new there and everybody was mm. so helpful, right? It was like, we we're all in this together. Central Park is closing off. It's nuts. Where can we get a cold beer? Literally, that was one of my priorities. Um, and, uh, you know, when there's a sense of a shared uh, enemy um, or a shared threat, it becomes easier for people to cooperate and to do so over a long period of time, again, despite competitive thrust behind all of their businesses. And I guess that brings, brings us to the last part of this, which is despite the common sense of helping each other and despite the sort of larger business context of we unite, you know, we are all these smaller crafts and we unite because a, li- a rising tide lifts all boats, this phrase that I heard over and over again in my interviews. Intellectual property is not structured to account for that or to understand it in any real way, which I guess makes sense given that it's a system of exclusive rights and the limitations uh, and exceptions are typically not ones that we think of as built in to foster cooperation as much as um, to, well, at least that's my view of it, right? We think of those uh, limitations and exceptions as being about protecting the public domain, protecting follow-on um, creativity and, um, you know, subsequent generations of creative endeavor. At least that's how I think of it. And some of the practices, the cooperative, actually, I don't know how you do that as an adjective, but the cooperative competitive (laughs) practices around collaboration and sharing in craft brewing seem to be, if not at odds with IP law, they, they fly in the face of it, which is maybe a slightly less strong way of saying Mm. that, right? So when you're sharing so much, you're potentially undermining your claims to secrecy. And when you're, um, when you're cross branding or, or engaged in various kinds of releases of co-brewed beer that use both of your logos, that's somewhere where trademark law usually does get involved. And in the view of some must get involved. And yet that wasn't tending to happen among craft brewers. Um, so that's, those were the interesting things from an IP, for me, from an IP perspective about what I was seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it struck me reading your paper that there were a number of areas where in the abstract, we might predict kind of intellectual property enforcement, right. or at least kind of quasi intellectual property right. rules to emerge. Like, you know, for example, when it comes to recipes, even if they're not technically copyrightable, people might sort of try to prevent other people from using their right. kind of signature recipes. When it comes to ideas about how to make beer more effectively, we might expect brewers to try to maintain trade secrecy to kind of maximize their ability to sort of utilize and 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 capitalize on their expertise. When it comes to branding, we might expect them to police aggressively the scope of their brands. And yet you seem to find that this is that that happens a lot less often than we might expect in the abstract and that there seem to be sort of internal social mechanisms that like in some ways sort of discourage enforcement but also provide alternative sort of ways of resolving those disputes among the relevant uh, industry participants. I wonder if you could talk about some examples of how that happened in practice. Like what kinds of practices did you see and how did the participants in the industry describe their decision 
to kind of act in particular ways in relation to the norms of the industry? Yeah, good question. I it's one of the things I want to do as a as a follow up. I have some grant funding to do the to expand data collection a little bit, and I'd like to do a survey. Um, maybe statewide, I don't know, just to ask the question of, have you ever had, I mean, a version of the question of, have you ever had a, a cease and desist or some request, even if it's not a formal one, just an informal request to not use a name and what did you do? Um, and obviously one has to get the, the questions kind of tailored in a way that's that I haven't sort of f- fully thought through that yet, but I wonder about it on a wide scale, uh, wider scale than just my um, 22 formal interviews. Um, I, the short version of this is that it depended a little bit on their market power um, or market position. So if they were a fairly new entrant, I would say if somebody asked the brewers that I spoke with not to use a name, they would often just back down um, because they didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to, you know, incur any ill will. And they really didn't have the kind of um, position in the, Seattle beer scene or nationally, and they also didn't have a formal mark, uh, you know, trademark, for instance. Um, the answer changed a little bit when people had registered marks, and I have to be careful about generalizing because the the you know this is really more um, based on anecdotes. When I'm talking about of the 22 people I interviewed, I'd have to look at exactly how many of them faced a specific situation. A, a few of them did for sure, or maybe a third of them. Um, where they had a mark and either found someone else using it or had a request to um, to use it, that kind of thing. Uh, but what was interesting in all cases was that the first option was never to resort to the most powerful legal tool. You could say that that you know when you generalize it down to, or when you abstract it rather to that level, that may be true of almost any industry because there may be a preference not to, you know, expend legal resources and, you know, um, ruin your stomach lining, right? In the stress and the money and all of it, right? If you don't have to litigate, it's not actually true in all industries. I mean, there are, you know, areas where notice and takedown or um, cease and desist letters are very common as a, right out of the gates, you know, um, as you know. But um, but it, it went beyond just that. I mean, it was there was a, a preference for collegiality. Um, and, uh, almost everybody's first response when I asked what you would do, whether or not they had faced it. So this is now, you know, probably, probably 90% of my interviewees could say whether or not they had faced it, they could imagine a situation and all of them said they would try a call or a peaceable measure first, um, if they discovered some sort of an overlap that made them suspect that perhaps their intellectual property rights were being violated. Um, and then uh, that answer changed in a pretty dramatic way when I said, well, now imagine if the person who's potentially uh, infringing on your rights came from big beer, right? And then all of a sudden, can I swear on this show? Uh, you absolutely can. Okay. Right. All of a sudden then it's, I'd sue the shit out of this guy. And I'd say, well, why? And the guy would say, cause fuck those guys. Right. There's no way. I, you know, that was really the first few times that happened. I was really like, what, what, you know, and the, the, the first answer would be this like thoughtful, you know, what, what's it, 
what's it going to cost me to do in terms of my consumers who will be upset and because they'll hear about it. And in terms of me looking like a jerk in my community and they'd be thinking about it and would customers really be confused by the same use of the mark and couldn't we just share and all get along. And, and then um, the real change when you changed the the possible uh, bad guy was, was striking to me. Mm, mm, mm. When it struck me as like a, a, a really kind of, perfect illustration of the insider outsider element to the industry uh, kind of organization that you were describing. And also this interesting illustration of like policing membership in the community in the sense that I would imagine from kind of an objective standpoint, there would be really strong incentives for you know, craft breweries that get to a certain level of capitalization and popularity to accept outside investment from these kind of massive international brewing conglomerates that have tons and tons of capital to to invest. And yet you describe a circumstance where, I mean, it sounds like there's a, at least arguably a way in which businesses are not choosing to kind of make that move precisely because they don't want to lose some of these synergies or kind of coopetition-ish commonalities with their peer uh, participants in the craft beer market. Is, is that like, a, does that re- reflect sort of your experience at all talking to these people? I think that that's certainly present. And I, I want to be clear that I don't overstate, or I want to make sure I don't overstate. Like there are, for instance, I, I just won't say it, but a, a one craft brewer that I didn't interview, um, whose beer is delicious and it's very well respected. And one summer when I was in the midst of this, I, I was traveling in various airports around the country and multiple times out of state saw t-shirts from this brewer and thought, wow, they really are expanding, you know, more than I had realized. And in one of my interviews, sure enough, somebody said about this one craft brewer, um, again, being careful, because as I talk about in the um, study, there's a kind of norm against speaking ill of other brewers, but something like, you know, that the only reason you can get that beer at Trader Joe's for whatever it is, like $7.99, a six pack is because they're growing, that brewery is growing so fast, they're trying to get bought. And so there is room for people who still haven't been bought or entities, right? They still haven't been bought by big beer being well-respected, a little bit of skepticism, sort of like, you know, I think that's where they're heading. And some sense, I mean, I talked with some people who said, well, I can't really begrudge them the the buyout. I don't, you know, I wouldn't do it, but um, you know, it's backbreaking work. And so I I don't want to overstate the fact that there is um, a range of different kinds of motivation at the same time, there is a very, very strong rhetoric, and it may even be a kind of conformity pressuring or conformity inducing rhetoric of all for one and one for all. And and I do think actually that there is concern, and it, it may be legitimate concern based on business practices about what happens when you get bought and you lose your independence. And there was often, um, in some of the very most thoughtful answers, a kind of honesty of saying, well, look, if AB InBev, for instance, wanted me to do a collaboration with them, I mean, I guess I'd be flattered. Like, how would they know who I was? You know, I'm a small brewer. Um, And there was some sense of wondering, like, well, what would I get out of it? Because maybe would that boost my brand? Um, And maybe if there was some sense of cash infusion, maybe they would think about it. 
But more often than not, there was a sense of like, yeah, but at what cost? Like, how bad would it be to my beer if I all of a sudden had people messing with my processes and insisting that I, you know, start cost accounting my choices to them or making the same beer over and over again? And then there was always a very strong sense of assessing the reputational harm that would follow um, based on the expected reactions of consumers and of other brewers. Um, mm. So it was it was a it was a diverse set of answers. It's just there was much much more cohesion around these norms of policing the boundaries than I knew existed, than I expected. Even as somebody who's been a snobby craft brewer, you know, for twenty two years. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so you, oh, you, sorry, yeah, craft you, brew drinker. I've never been a craft brewer. I <laughs> sorry, no, not at all. So yeah. you you talk about this kind of broadly defined kind of anti-slander norm among mm -hmm. craft brewers and uh, and sort of by extension sort of recognize that this anti-slander norm does not at all appear to apply to kind of commercial industrial brewers it's a very insider outsider element uh, totally. as well as well and i also noticed and as you've acknowledged already um that you know your your study was primarily but not entirely anonymized. And, and I wonder mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about that, you know, how the anonymity was relevant to these concerns about anti-slander norms and encouraging people to speak, frankly, with you, and whether and to what extent the anonymization was, you know, and part of an effort to comply with like an institutional review board type policies and so on. Sure. So that's an easy one. Um, and my, my former research assistant will laugh um, when he hears this because it, it, we think it was like the fastest ever approval. We did not have to, we were exempt basically because the kinds of questions we were asking were not sensitive. So even though we went through the process, we were approved, I want to say later that day um, or maybe two days later, we did not have the kind of wrangling with some, you know, and UW takes that very seriously as they should. Um, it's just the nature of the questions were not um uh, seen as harmful or privacy affecting. Um, that being said, um, I have mixed feelings about the anonymization. It, it made it, um, much harder upon publication. I mean, I had to like, only provide very redacted, um, versions of things where I would like black out names with a Sharpie and then submit interview pages. You know, I think it was harder for them and harder for me. Um, just selfishly speaking. Um, and I wished that I could actually open the data for other people to see. And I think I might, I might work towards something more like that in future. That being said, um, there were, you can see them in the interviews, many points of inflection where the um, honesty started flowing in a richer way. Um, once there was just a little reminder and you'll see it there in the transcripts where I say, and mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to say anything, but you can remember this is protected and, you know, this is off the record or this is, you know, anonymous. And then all of a sudden, like sort of juicy details would come forward, um, including things like secret ingredients or squabbles that people did not feel comfortable airing, but that were meaningful among a certain group of people, you know, so I don't have, I don't have the sort of fully, um, worked out answer for what I would do in a subsequent study. But having spoken with Jessica a little bit about it and seeing her tendency to kind of open things more, I think I would try to do a little bit more to 
not to de-anonymize, but to get permission. Um, for instance, I, I interviewed um, what was then, and I probably is still now the only gluten-free um, uh, brewery in Seattle. Highly recommended. Excellent. Very thoughtful about their methods. Um, and there's no way to talk about any of that. You know, so I right there on the spot said, hey, if I refer to you, people will know that I've interviewed you. And they said, that's, that's totally fine. You know, um, but there were other details that it would have been, I think, helpful to share. And so some of that's just as a, no a novice qualitative researcher, you learn some of these things and think, oh, well, maybe I would design parts of the study differently. And maybe I would really think hard about letting go of the anonymity, despite the sort of, you know, pain that it imposed and the kind of closed nature of it, because I do think it shook some things free. Um, so, mm, mm, mm. so I also not a very black and white answer, I'm afraid, but yeah, <laughs> not, not at all. Not at all. So I also wanted to, you know, just briefly reflect on this sort of, uh, you know, the rising tide raises all boats kind of coopetition element of the community that you're describing. I mean, that's, you know, uh, on its face, a kind of really pleasant sort of anodyne way of describing this kind of relationship. But, you know, uh, uh, in the alternative, there's also like the potential to describe that relationship as say for example cartelization right oh, and, totally. and so i you know i wonder to what extent the circumstances you're describing have an element of that to them and is you know are there ways or did you did you have any concerns or did you see any examples where craft brewers were kind of de facto making decisions that had a cartel-like flavor to them, like price maintenance or anything like that? Or was that simply just not on the table, like not the kind of thing that they were interested in pursuing? Didn't I didn't ask anybody um, or hear much about pricing other than people talking about sort of the price point for craft beers being different and sort of session ales. And we talked a little bit about that, but um, I guess a way of thinking about cartelization that's less economic and more sociological is an area where I had some thoughts or concerns. And, you know, I, one of the research flaws was assuming that in order to get the story here, I needed to talk to people who were in breweries and realizing that at a certain point in it's harder for breweries, even the most well-meaning ones who are seeking to recruit women brewers, it's hard for them to find qualified applicants. Um, that's their story anyway. And it's hard for, um, women in the industry to find work. Um, and now there's a, been really exciting um, openings around um, not just marketing and sales, uh, but also in uh, bench science. So a lot of women um, coming over with hard science backgrounds, as well as women in, in, in brewing, right? There are some really um, very well-respected, um, you know, a, a woman who, who referred to sort of a nose uh, locally, you know, the way they refer to in wine and another one who's just you know, among the top brewers in Seattle, um, uh, you know, at the helm of her brewery. Uh, and, and so that's, that's, I think, becoming more common. Um, but it's still a world in which people can refer to beardy white guys mm -hmm. and have that be a kind of, you know, a, a story of, mm -hmm. of uh, Seattle brewing and probably craft brewing nationally is, you know, even though there are uh, changing demographics. And I'll, I guess I'll just say that, I gave a talk on this at a downtown law firm um, 
a couple years ago and uh, was talking about the uh, informal norms and an African-American man came up to me afterwards and said, well, I wonder if you think about sort of civil rights, because it's, of course, the, the norms that permit all sorts of, you know, old boys networks and things like that. Um, mm. And the, it's the formal legal rules that require certain kinds of equality and that police certain sorts of um, clubbishness that actually can change society for the good. And it was an interesting conversation because I think at that point I hadn't stepped back as much as I think I have now to sort of see the larger effect. And I was interested in the story of collegiality without thinking as much. I was beginning to see the patterns of exclusion. Hmm. Um, And I think that there's a lot of good intent and you can see that in the ways that um, breweries of various sizes and socioeconomic sort of status have um, various kinds of festivals where they partner with a more junior brewer um, or you'll see partnership across gender lines or whatever, making a new beer, a collaboration beer in a way to shake up the old boys network where all the guys are just kind of brewing and then hanging out and coming up with beers together. And it's sort of a closed society. Um, But I think there's still more work to do. And I think the people of color that I spoke with were first and foremost craft brewers. And they would kind of say that there was no real problem, no real racism, but then there are stories about things they'd heard and things that they'd sat through in a room indicated very clear instances where racism, you know, was something that they were choosing to overlook for the sake of the larger collegiality. And they were kind of like, well, and I just, I just listened and I just ignored it or I laughed it off. Mm. And that's something that suggests that, you know, as a culture, um, progresses, advances, grows, it just has to continue to be attentive to who it's including and who it's excluding, even if there is this larger norm of like big is bad, small is good, right? But who are we including in the small? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so Zar, I, I wonder if in closing, you could reflect a little bit on where you think you might take this project in, in the future. I mean, it, it sounds like you may be planning to do additional work on the craft beer industry, but I'm also kind of hearing some reflections more broadly on kind of law and social norms scholarship in general. And, and I wonder if you see, you know, if or if you might be interested in pursuing this kind of angle or approach into kind of thinking about how some of those, those tensions you were just talking about, you know, between the sort of positive aspects of informal norms, but also the potentially pernicious influence of uh, informal norms in other contexts might be important in how we think about sort of pursuing these kinds of, um, these kinds of projects around kind of quasi IP and other, other forms of informal ordering. Sure. So the short answer on the first part, um, what am I doing with this project next is that I've, I've got a section on IP practices and attitudes. It just, just didn't fit in the first long (laughs) draft. And so that's kind of in the second spinoff piece um, where I'm also digging into trademark naming practices um, where there was just a wealth of interesting stuff. And it's also, you know, in in the interviews, I mean, and it's also where one actually sees litigation in this field. Um, And so that's kind of the the follow on piece in terms of the larger question about law and social norms. Um, absolutely. I know you and I share a very strong interest in the way copyright law in particular um, lands for various uh, 
different kinds of parties, right? Well-heeled parties can afford to uh, litigate in different ways and to behave uh, differently with respect to, to risks. Uh, whereas um, whether they're uh, local designers, um, jewelry makers, documentary filmmakers, um, wh- whoever we're talking about, if it's a group of people with um, typically less access to uh, legal resources, less access to, um, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, money um, and sophistication, it, it feels as though IP law ought to take more note when it's landing with um, unequal impact or if enforcement becomes something that one either can afford or can't afford to do. And maybe that's always been true to some extent, right? But I think that's actually one of the things a sociological or sort of quasi-sociological approach to intellectual property law can give us is an awareness of whether these laws really feel um, maybe fair in theory or fair in the abstract, but unfair as applied or as enforced. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, no, I think that, 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 that definitely makes a lot of sense to me. Well, Zar, thank, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed reading your paper and, and talking to you about it. And I look forward to checking out the follow-on project as well, because the trademark aspect of this paper was, was really pretty cool and fascinating. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. And um, I'm happy to have served as a pretext for making mead. So I'll, I'll uh, <laughs> sampling that at some point in the future. Thanks I, I, again. I, I, I promise to get you some. <laughs> That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. All right. Oh